Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I had Cliff Gilly, otherwise known as the Clever PM on the show. Cliff and I talked about understanding your own personal core competencies, the importance of working with data and using data correctly, and the day-to-day of being a product manager. In part of that day-to-day, we talked about the chaos that often exists in product management. And this got me to thinking, is chaos, whether it's a lot or at least a little, a given in product management? Is there no getting around fires and interruptions? Is an ability to deal with chaos really a necessity for you as a product manager, or is there another way? Well, enough for me. Let's kick this off, and afterwards, tweet at me at eBoduk, or shoot me a note at eBoduk at pendo.io, and tell me what you think. Well, welcome, lovers of product. I am here with Cliff Gilly. Cliff, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Uh, sure. So many, many, many years ago, I didn't actually know there was something called a product manager. I was actually on track to go to law school, become a criminal prosecutor, and that was kind of my life plan at the time. So after graduating, we had this initiative, CarTab initiative, passed here in Washington that uh, resulted in budget cuts across the state. And the prosecutor job that I thought I was a shoo-in for just kind of disappeared into thin air. So I was sitting there, you know, with a law degree, no bar results for six months, and very little interest in doing civil law or criminal defense. And I wound up being recruited by this small kind of startup-ish company over in Bellevue, Washington that worked with legal technology. And we're looking for people to fly to Dallas for eight weeks, all expenses paid, to bring the basically the support team up from Dallas to Bellevue. And I was like, well, hmm, I get eight weeks of paid time to go visit Dallas and, and hang out down there. So I figured, you know, why not? We can see what my bar results are when I get back, all that sort of thing. So I signed up for that and uh, wound up becoming a support lead for the company. It turned out that no one from Dallas other than one person wanted to come up and support the product. So we had to learn everything about it from the bottom up in eight weeks and come back up and have a functioning support team here in Bellevue. And that was just amazingly complicated, but fun. And while I was there, I kind of watched and and everything seemed to flow through these two guys in the organization, right? Every request, every bug fix, every decision that had to be made about the product flowed through one of these two guys, one over each of the products that we were running. And I kind of thought to myself, I was like, that's the job I want, right? They've got all the power, all the authority. They're making all the decisions. And so I worked with them and, you know, helped them out here and there. And when an APM role opened up, associate product manager, you know, they offered it to me and I was like, yes, finally, you know, I have the power and I have the authority. And I very quickly found out that that was not the case at all. I was schooled very quickly to find out that there was no power and there was no authority in the role, but there was a lot of negotiation. There was a lot of discussion and influence that you could have, but you couldn't just be the dictator of the product, you know, from the very beginning. So I was able to kind of leverage, you know, some of the legal training that I had to to create, you know, compelling arguments and and frame discussions and that sort of thing. So that's how I fell into being a product manager. And it's turned out to be my entire career for like 15 plus years at a variety of companies, broad range of sizes and a wide selections of markets to play in. 
I think that's an awesome story. It's very interesting how different people fall into the job or whether they seek it out from the beginning. Now, you mentioned something I wanted to dig into. So you attended law school, and I also noticed you studied sociology and psychology. Talk to me a little bit more about how your background in law in your studies has helped you in becoming a PM. I think you hinted at one thing, you were able to craft really good arguments, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's been one of the biggest things, but also, you know, studying psychology and sociology is is an excellent background, in my opinion, for a product manager, because so much of what we do, it falls into those two disciplines from an academic perspective, right? You know, psychology is about understanding the individual, their motivations, their concepts of self, what drives them, what they fear, you know, all of those sorts of things. And sociology plays with that on a, on a larger scale, a more, more meta scale of, you know, how do we convince, how do groups act? How do groups of people respond to different stimuli? You know, how do they, how do they organize? How do they disorganize? How do, you know, my, I was, I was very strongly into the, uh, obviously going into criminal law, you know, the, the side of, you know, antisocial behaviors and, and anomie theory and, and how do people become isolated from the groups and those sorts of things. And I think the background of, of having a scientific understanding of that really feeds well into the role of a product manager. I understand that decisions can be made by gut instinct, but that we probably should try to get data to behind that. And at the same time, understand the limitations of that data, because you know, in psychology, you could have five different people and you can get data from them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the five next people will have the same perceptions, the same behaviors, right? It's, it's, there's a little bit of conjecture that goes into those social sciences that isn't present in the hard sciences. And I think that really keys into one of the strengths of a product manager, being able to understand that even if we have all of the data, that data might not necessarily be right for the next customer to come along. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Talk to me about how data can lead you astray. Um, I mean, it's really easy. I think we've all seen this. You know, we, we do a, we'd send out a survey, we get 10 results, and we base decisions on a non-random collection of 10 people who took the time and effort and energy to, to return our, our survey. You know, we know for a fact that, you know, based on, based on research, that people are more likely to give negative feedback than they are to give positive feedback. So instantly, a survey that you send out is skewed in that way, right? You know that, you should know that you're far more likely to get negative, negative information than you are to get positive information. That's just one of the many biases that come into play. So as product managers, we, I mean, we kind of need to step back from the data occasionally and say, you know, does this really make sense? You know, at a gut level from everything that I know and that we as a company know about this market, are we really getting the right data or are we just getting data and making decisions based on that? So that, that's a strong quality for a product manager, right? The ability to not only capture data and get feedback, but interpret that data properly. What other qualities do you personally look for in product managers, right? You came from a non-technical background. So do you look for domain expertise on any level? What else do you think product managers need? Uh, sure. So for, first, I wouldn't really consider myself a non-technical product manager. I've been building websites and, and doing apps and, and development on, my, on the side since like the mid-90s. So although I'm an advocate for non-technical product managers, I'm not probably not the archetype of them. But I don't have a CS degree, right? I, I've got a human sciences degree. I've got a law background. I kind of know enough to uh, call BS when it needs to happen. But I, I think for me, you know, when I'm advising people who want to become product managers, when I'm doing coaching, when I'm doing mentoring or, you know, influencing hiring decisions, the one thing that I look for is curiosity. 
I think above anything else, a product manager needs to be curious about the market, the product, the technology, and also your career, like your own personal growth. You know, people who are curious poke and prod and learn on their own, independent of what others are expecting from them. You know, we don't, we, we shouldn't wait for marketing to ask us what we think about a market segment to, to have some information about it. We should be out there seeking that actively ourselves. And you know, curiosity leads to data. It may not be the most, you know, broadest scope of data possible, but there's data there. That data leads us to hypotheses. Those hypotheses lead us to solving interesting problems, which is the whole point of being a product manager. Tech skill is is interesting to me as a product manager, but demonstrating that curiosity and the ability to follow through on it seems to me to be perhaps the best indicator of, of a successful product manager, regardless of where they're coming from. I like that. I like that a lot. I hear that quite often that curiosity is either a word PMs use to describe themselves or something they look for as far as, you know, soft qualities or soft skills. What else? What other soft qualities or soft skills do you look for? I like to, I, I like to find people who can be egoless. And that, that doesn't mean that they're meek. That doesn't mean that they can, you know, that they, they don't stand up and fight when they need to. But a product manager's job is kind of selfless and thankless if you're doing it right. You should be giving the credit to the teams that are succeeding under you because without them, you're not anything. You know, I can't build a $20 million B2B platform on my own. But at the same time, you need to kind of stand up and take take the lumps when something goes wrong. So, you know, you're kind of the, I don't want to say scapegoat because you should never, you should never take blame that you're not willing to uh, stand up and accept yourself, but you kind of become the, the sword and the shield for the, for the teams that you work with, you know, standing up to take, take the lumps when something goes wrong, but definitely giving the credit to performance for the people that are actually doing the work. And that takes a really, a really unique kind of person to be able to set, set aside their ego and, and give that credit where it's due and take the lumps where, you know, I may have done everything absolutely right. And the development team just totally you know, flaked out on me. But I can't tell that to, you know, the higher ups. I need to take responsibility and say, well, it's my team, it's my product, it's my project. We failed because of this and we're going to do better because of that. I think that's that that kind of egoless approach is is super important. So you you write about, you know, chaos, right? Controlled chaos. How do you think that relates to the world of product management? I think it is the world of product management, um, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I can't really imagine any other role in an organization that is more exposed to chaos, randomization, interruption, and just plain old distractions than product management. And personally, that's why I love it. One of the, the more annoying slides that I see in teaching engagements or in, in different mentoring situations is the day in the life of a product manager slide. We've all seen it. It's been in so many things. And it's just such utter BS. I mean, I, I know what it's supposed to do. You know, it's supposed to set expectations, introduce people to common interactions and deliverables and level set them to say, you know, you don't know this, but this is what it's like to be a product manager. But the reality is, and, and I've, I've seen this throughout my entire career, right? We don't really know what any day is going to bring. We can have a general plan for the day or the week, but you know, there might be a fire that pops up in the dev team that needs to be put out. There might be some huge whale on the line over in sales with some specific need that must be in the product or they won't sign the deal. Or there might be some new shiny object that your CEO you know, just heard of in Bloomberg Business and wants to just jump on, like, like you know, uh, blockchain. Hey, we need to be blockchain. Well, we're, that's not, that has nothing to do with what we do, but, but now the CEO is interested in it, so we have to do it. 
All of those things happen in a moment's notice in the world of a good product manager. If you're not experiencing some amount of chaos, I wonder if you're really doing the job right. Because actually, it reminds me of a a line one of my mentors told me, which is if everyone likes you every day, you're not doing your job as a product manager. Because someone should be annoyed or frustrated or angry or upset with the decision you made, or you're you're making way too safe of of decisions. I think that relates back to chaos, right? If your day-to-day is predictable and known and there's never any surprises, I'd really question just what the product team is actually doing. Because either you're playing it way too safe or you're being insulated from those decisions and, and that chaos that's happening around you. So for me, product management is is all about, you know, every day is a different day. Every week brings new challenges and opportunities and every month is an opportunity to reflect and improve. Oh, sorry. I was distracted by this shiny object over here. (laughs) No, but uh, seriously, uh, you brought up something I wanted to delve into. So shiny objects, huge distraction. How do you deal with the shiny objects that show up in the form of, say, a CEO that read an article or watched, as you said, a Bloomberg report? Like, How do you give advice to the PMs out there that have that come to them maybe quite often? So I've got a few tools in in my belt that I've I've developed over the years. The biggest and most important one is to have very, very clear priorities and no more than 10 of them for each team, for each product, for each project, whatever it is, you know, make it just as clear as possible. One sentence, five items. That way, if anyone comes to you and says, hey, I really need you to look at this, you can just point up to the wall and say, okay, well, there are the five priorities that this team, this project, these people have which one of those is your thing more important than? And and that forces them to justify the change. And it works, it honestly works for CEOs, it works for your sales team, it works for your developers. You know, it, it's it's as long as everyone is aligned on those five most important things that the team's working on, then you can really just point to the wall and say, okay, which of those needs to move? And assuming you've done the homework and you've gotten the alignment on that, it's pretty rare that anyone's going to say, oh, well, this is absolutely the most important thing, so everything else needs to move. Because you know, going through the process of building those, those lists, you've talked with everyone, you've had meetings, you've discussed the priorities, you know, everyone walks out, if not in full agreement, at least having been heard. So I think developing those you know, top five priorities, top 10 priorities, and point, being able to point to them when that shiny object comes up. And you know what? If the CEO says, this is the most important thing and all five of those things have to be set aside, that's kind of their prerogative as CEO. And you can, you can explain the impacts and you can tell them who came up with the priorities and what business outcome they're driving. But you know, we, the myth of the, the product manager is the CEO of the product is, is something that kind of needs to die because we aren't. We're beholden to the C-level executives. We're beholden to directors. We're beholden to VPs who can come in at any point in time and say, do this. And no matter how much you want to argue or how much you, you know, how much data you have or anything, ultimately they're the ones that are in charge. And you may have to sometimes do things that you don't necessarily agree with. So speaking of shinies, you know, what are your thoughts on the concept? I don't know if it's a trend yet, but the concept of product-led growth, right? It's it's a word, a phrase we've been hearing, you know, more often in product and product management. Yeah, it's it's bugging. It's it's really bugging me. <laughs> Cuz to me, you know, growth is is a fundamental concept of, to any business, right? We don't start a company or sell a product to grab 5% of the market and be happy with that. You can't build a sustainable business without some plan for growth. 
And the fact that this is now like some kind of weird industry buzzword really frustrates me and tells me that what's actually happening is that our cultures, our organizational cultures aren't valuing growth in the right way. We're not making sure that everyone in the company is invested in growth in some meaningful way. You know, the idea that there's some growth officer that gets hired in or promoted in, and and that's the one neck to choke for driving growth in an organization is is kind of scary if you think about it. Because if you need to bring in an outside person, that tells me that your culture itself doesn't value growth. And, you know, you need a culture that focuses on growth. You need a vision that pushes everyone in the organization toward growth. And bringing in someone to advocate for that is great. You know, there's nothing wrong with it inherently, but it, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, if you have to bring someone in, then does the CEO really value growth? Do the VP level organizations really value growth? And there's a real risk there that all of the delivery of that growth winds up falling on this person who has no power, no authority, you know, only influence, which should sound really familiar to product managers. But if they can't get everyone to just agree that growth is something that the company needs to be about, then they'll never succeed. And it, it's kind of a, it's kind of an offsetting of that responsibility to one person rather than the company as a whole. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I guess to summarize a little, what you're saying is is all the different organizations should be thinking about growth all the time. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're not growing, you're dying. And that's a, that's kind of a, a trite way to say it, but it's true. Any company that starts to plateau on their revenues, on their customer numbers, whatever measures they have, you know, once they hit that plateau, it can be really, really hard to re-engage that engine to move the needle again. A lot of companies, quite frankly, just die at that point. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, it's not just sales that's in charge of growth or marketing that's in charge of growth. It's other parts of the organizations. And having said that, let's talk more specifically on like, how does product and how can your product be built to facilitate growth and maybe take some of the burden off of, you know, sales, marketing and success? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a the product is absolutely one of the key drivers of growth. And what we want, I mean, what we really want to do is one, first define what growth is, right? Growth could mean monetary growth. It could mean we're shooting for virality. You know, we're just shooting for a large number of people to have exposure to our product or our ideas. It could mean different things at different times. So the first thing is the product team needs to engage on defining and getting clarity over what kind of growth is being valued and what what the goals are around that. And we're kind of uniquely positioned to do that as a product team, right? We've, we've got our, we've at least got our ears to the ground throughout the entire organization, if not our fingers, you know, poking holes in dikes to keep the flood waters from overcoming us. But we can drive that definition of what growth means. What, you know, what is important to the company? What is important to the organization? It can be a six month plan. It can be a one year plan. It can be a three month plan. It could be a one month plan. It doesn't matter what that is, but understanding what the goals are is the most important thing because then, you know, your your user experience, your design, your feature prioritization is all going to have to be based around at least in part that growth metric. So, you know, if we have a feature that is going to satisfy existing users versus a feature that we think is going to drive new adoption, everything else could be equal. But if our goal is growing the number of people using the product, then obviously we're going to pick the growth feature over the satisfier feature. And that's, that's something that we just need to do as product managers every single day. 
So one other area, one other trend, you know, you've written about is agile, right? And it's been a trend for a while. And you talk about how it often fails in a lot of companies. You know, why is that? And how can they implement it so that maybe it won't fail? So I really, I truly believe that the reason why agile transitions fail in most organizations is that people forget that agility is a value. It's a cultural value. It's not a process or a methodology that you just check a box somewhere and say, okay, we're agile. That's not how it works. You know, Scrum is not agile and agile is not Scrum. Scrum is a methodology that was built off of the principles of agile development, but it is not itself agile. You know, true agility in a business context requires that the entire culture of the company shift from one that values certainty and planning above everything else to one that embraces uncertainty and holds short-term goals more important than long-term objectives. Doesn't mean you can't have a 12-month roadmap, but that 12-month roadmap in a truly agile organization looks very different from the roadmap in a waterfall organization. In agile organizations, we wouldn't plan out a specific feature to be delivered in nine months from now. Because that doesn't make any sense. We know, based on experience, that the likelihood of that feature being important nine months from now, or as important as we think it is now in nine months, is probably not actually going to wind up being true. And I've, I've gone through this exercise at several different companies, like, show me your roadmaps going back three years. And every time you'll see this one feature or these two features that just sits at that nine-month phase across all three of those roadmaps. And you can ask them, like, okay, well, why didn't you do that? because something else more important came up. I'm like, yep, that's agility. You know, you may not even realize that you're doing it, but you're making decisions based on new information. That's agile. You know, Scrum's a great methodology, and it's one that I, I really highly recommend people start with when they're starting to make the move toward a more agile organization. But you have to remember, it's also really prescriptive and really proscriptive, right? The Scrum Guide literally says at the very end of it that if you're not doing everything in this guide, you're not doing Scrum. That's, that is by definition not agile, right? Agile is about inspecting and adapting. Agile is about gaining new information and insight and making decisions based on that. So why I like Scrum is it, it's a great base from which you can start to think, why are we doing this, right? Why are we having daily standups? Why are we doing retrospectives? Why are we doing uh, two-week iterations? And, and hopefully, when they, if a company takes the time and starts thinking about the why behind the what, they start to understand and they start to internalize some of those values, right? Short iterations, inspect and adapt cycles, regular reviews with stakeholders, prioritize backlogs, continuous improvement. All of those things are 100% agile, but the specific implementation of them in Scrum may or may not be depending on what you are getting value out from as a company or as a product organization. I think that's a good thing for people to think about. And one of those things is you know, specifically prioritization, right? Talk about your approach to prioritization, how, you know, maybe it's more art than science. Yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of framed that in a couple of recent blog articles. And I, it's come from my experience, right? I, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've been exposed to a ton of different methods out there, you know, from internal and external methods, qualitative and quantitative methods. And all of those can provide you a, a framework for collecting data, analyzing data, presenting data. But the problem with every single one of them and every single methodology I've ever seen that tries to be prescriptive as to what you should do or what you are going to do, all of them can be gamed and all of them wind up being gamed in one way or another by internal stakeholders who have wants that are not 
in line with the the needs of the customer. And it can be really challenging as a product manager to tell someone that what they want is not what the customer wants. Because, you know, especially in mid-size growth stage companies, right, you've got a CEO or a management team that started the product with some brilliant idea that nobody had thought of, that no one could conceive of succeeding. And now you're telling them that their instincts are bad or counter to what the customer really wants. Those are hard discussions. And I, I would never, I would never suggest anyone frame them in that way. But what you can do is do, you know, pick pick a methodology, pick the Kano framework, pick the Eisenhower quadrants, uh, uh, was it low risk, high reward, right? Use those, use those models to to develop a proposal for what the priorities might be. But then, you know, just like we said with the data analysis, right? Step back and, and say, does it make sense? You know, given what we know about the market, given what we know about what analysts are saying, given what we know about new places we want to go, you know, we may only have data from people who are our friendly customers, but we want to expand to a new market. So we need to step back and say, okay, you know, does this actually make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, talk about it and explain why, you know, yes, the outcome of, of our quantitative analysis was this, but we really think that this other thing is more important because, you know, it's a big bet. It's a risk. It's not quantitatively the, the obvious choice, but if it pays off, then we get this whole new market and we grow by 25% this quarter. You know, having those discussions and decisions really is what a, a senior product manager should be able to do. You should be able to look at that prioritization and be like, yeah, that doesn't, I, I know where the data came from. I know the data sounds sound. You know, it's a random sample. It's all statistically significant. Everything mathematically is telling me that, that these are the results. But really number three is just striking me as like the best opportunity for the market at this point in time. You know, we need to be able to adjust those decisions based on our contextualization of the data. And then when you throw in, you know, the fact that we've got hippos out there, the highest paid person in the room making decisions, right? It really does become more art than science because no matter how much quantitative data we have out there, we may need to dissuade the CEO from wanting to do this shiny object project that has nothing to do with the data. You know, we have to play the the role of counselor uh, in some ways, right? The role of the the translator between what the data is telling us, what the market's telling us, and what, you know, what the world could look like if we made a different choice. So that leads me a little bit to this concept of core competencies, right? How do you help product managers and their teams find their core competencies that they need to succeed, that they need to convince, say, the CEO to, you know, not go down this path of a shiny object and lots of other things, really? Yeah, so I, I find core competencies to be kind of fascinating, you know, from my psychology and sociology background, you know, one really interesting thing about it is they're not always what we think they are. So, you know, human beings, quite honestly, are not generally the best judges of our own strengths and weaknesses. We tend to overestimate our strengths and underestimate our weaknesses on a daily basis. It's just, it's kind of how we're wired. We're, we're wired to see ourselves as better and more competent than we may actually be. But when we're prompted to actually focus and critically assess those beliefs, sometimes we become our own best slash worst critic, right? Because we can actually look deep into ourselves and, and be honest. And there's there's a concept in psychology that's really stuck with me through many, many years. And it's the idea that there's a dissonance and it's a constant dissonance between 
the person we say we are or believe we are, it's called the, the espoused theory, and the person that we actually are, and that's called our theory and practice. So you see this in, in all sorts of different contexts. You know, Some people believe that this is what was driving a lot of the election results in, in 2016, was that people were saying one thing, but they were doing an entirely different thing. And there's social pressures related to that. There's sense of self related to that. It's a really fascinating concept. But it applies 100% to understanding what our individual core competencies might be, as well as our teams and our products, right? When we're thinking about what those core competencies might be, it's, it's not something you can just sit down and be like, oh, my core competencies are this, 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 and this. I'm awesome at those four things. Then done. It really takes a process. It really takes some time to step back and say, okay, what are the things that I think I'm good at? What are the actual behaviors that I'm doing? that deliver that or support that assertion. And the absolute best thing for product managers as far as personal growth is getting a 360 degree review from people you actually work with on those metrics, right? If I think I'm great at negotiating, but you know, five of my coworkers all say that it's painful to talk to me because I'm, uh, I'm stubborn and unwilling to listen, well, I'm obviously not a good negotiator, no matter what I think. So you know, doing the step of, of identifying what you think your core competencies are, what you think your behaviors are that, that support that, and then what other people think is absolutely critical. And that, that will really be kind of an eye-opening process for an individual. And if you do that for a team, it's even more interesting and fun because now you start to see start to get into the analysis of the different interactions within the team. You know, when Joe and Bob get together on a project, then they get these kinds of results. But when Jim and Bob work on this other type of project, we get a totally different set of results. Why is that? You know, what is it that changes depending on who's working together or who's who's giving feedback? One of the very simple things we've started doing here at K2 is we have a weekly PM call where we just raise and review work that's ongoing. It's something we haven't done very well in the past, but the collaboration is amazing because we're now not just leveraging an individual strength when creating a slide deck or a project charter or even a, a backlog of work items, right? We're bringing that to the meeting and everyone's giving their feedback and Jim has this perspective and Joe has that perspective and Bob's got this third perspective and it just helps us polish it out to leverage everybody's strengths. But the key, the, the most important thing I want people to remember about the core competency idea is that it's, it's something unique to you or your team or your product. It's something you do better than anyone else and that they can't easily replicate. So it's not just being a good negotiator, right? My personal core competency right now that I think I'd throw out there is, is facilitation. I am, I am the best meeting facilitator in this organization. There, I've gotten that feedback from many people that there's no one else in this organization that they want to run their meetings. Unfortunately, that means I've wound up running a lot more meetings where I really have no feedback or, or, or context to. But you know, that's my core competency right now at K2 is I, I'm the guy that runs, that facilitates meetings. Hmm, interesting. I'd love to dig into that a little bit deeper on, on, on dissonance, but <laughs> I, I want to talk first about common mistakes that product managers make, what you see and, and how you help them avoid them. Yeah, I think the absolute biggest mistake that all product managers make, and if, if they say they don't, then I, I think they're lying because I do it too, is really making the mistake that you are not your customer, right? Even if you worked in the industry, even if you used to be a customer, even if you use the product on a daily basis for what you're using it for, you are not your customer. You're not a paying customer. You're not a user in another organization trying to do it. 
you know, there's the classic quote from pragmatic marketing that, you know, quote, while, you know, your opinion while interesting is irrelevant. I don't take that literally because obviously an informed opinion of a product manager should be interesting and relevant, but it's a reminder that we need to think about our users, our markets, and our products from the perspective of them, right? Not from our perspective, not from our interests, not from our needs. We really need to be constantly engaging with those customers and those prospects to ensure that the information that we have is informed, is timely, and data-driven, right? Way too many product managers, and I'm, I'm guilty of this for in several companies, right, is that we spend way too much time, even the majority of our time, sitting in the four walls of our office and not out there actively engaging with the market, right? Not visiting customers, not engaging with them over a webinar or over, you know, some way of, of actually getting emotional, empathetic contact with our customers. And if we do that, then, then we're actually able to separate ourselves much more easily from our own beliefs versus our customers' needs. I think that's by far the biggest mistake that any product manager makes is just forgetting that they're, they're not the customer, they're not the user, they're not the market. So what about trends coming up in product management? Anything people should be thinking about, paying attention to, reading about? So I'm going to soapbox this and then I'm going to give a different, give, I'm going to give two answers. One's my soapbox and one's more interesting. I'm really hopeful that the next biggest trend in product management over the next few years is quite frankly, clarity about what the role is and what the role isn't and what it should be and what it shouldn't be, right? It is, it is way too much of a crapshoot out there in the market when you see a role that has the title of product manager to even guess what that role actually is. You know, it could be it could be a glorified project manager. It could be uh, a marketing role. It could be a portfolio manager. It could be nothing more than a scrum master. But it's almost impossible right now, in the, in at least in the Seattle market, and I'm I'm pretty sure elsewhere, to really know before you start engaging with a company what they mean by product management. What is the role? What is a technical product manager? What is a program manager? What's a portfolio manager? What's a product designer? Like all of these popular in the moment variations of the title really give companies and even people like this false sense of the scope and scale and responsibilities of product manager. It doesn't mean the same thing from one company to another, to another, to another. The classic example I give is is Microsoft. Program management at Microsoft is product management anywhere else. And product management at Microsoft is really portfolio management anywhere else. So you need to know this, right? It's not it's not listed in the Microsoft job recs that, that go out there, right? It's not listed that, you know, we understand that product management is X, Y, and Z, but this product management role is really A, B, and C. As a profession, we've we've just failed miserably at trying to figure out exactly what we want this job to be and how we want to define the edges of it and what we don't want it to be. And so, I mean... I'll be honest, I like the jack-of-all-trades approach of being a product manager. I'm, I'm kind of old school in that way, right? I grew up in this career path where you did whatever you needed to do, you helped whoever you needed to help, and you would be writing marketing collateral one day and then helping out sales on-site the next and then writing product specifications the third day. That's really cool. Like I said, there's chaos in there. It's, it's kind of interesting. But is is that really the most value that someone who is a product manager can bring to the organization? Or does that organization actually need to fill in those roles with actual, you know, technical sales support people or actual marketing copywriters? We kind of become this crutch for a lot of organizations. And and I think it would do us a lot of good if we could 
if we could better refine and clarify, you know, this is what a product manager is. And if you're not doing these five things, then you're really not doing product management. Yeah, I think that would be highly useful, right? A product manager's manifesto, maybe. Yes, I, I, I've, I've thought about that several times. And then, so that's my soapbox, right? I, I really want the profession to improve itself. I want some consistent understanding that when I, when I apply for a product management job at five different companies, it's going to roughly mean the same thing. But if I step off that soapbox and give some, you know, some actual actionable, like hopeful trends, I really think that the most exciting trend in product management is the increased focus on hard quantitative data as an input into our product lifecycle, especially coming from B2B, coming from platforms that were eight, 10 years old before I even got to them. You know, it was, it's impossible. It was impossible for us to collect the kind of data five years ago that we can now through companies like Pendo, companies like User Voice, you know, other players in the market, they're, they're making it it's so simple to put in that instrumentation, that telemetry, where five years ago, if you, if you hadn't thought about it when you started the project, you, it just wouldn't be there. And if you're working on a platform that's 10 years old, no one was thinking about telemetry and instrumentation 10 years prior. So, so it just wasn't there. So you didn't have any data. All you had was qualitative data, if you had that. And if you layer on top of that, you know that's what we have now. But what's coming is the application of machine learning and AI to that data, right? Because that's a massive amount of data. It's not easily understandable. But once we start to apply machine learning, apply AI, you know, we're going to get some really interesting insights that take seconds that would have taken months or years to collect before. Having said that, I do want to caution this, that, that AI and ML are, are not going to unseat the role of product manager. I've, I've heard this several times that, you know, once we have technology to analyze the data, we don't need a product manager. The data will just tell us what to do. And I've mentioned that a few times, right? The role of the product manager is still important in contextualizing that data. It's still important in looking at that data and saying, really, does that actually make sense? Aside from the joke memes where you see I fed, you know, Harry Potter books to an ML system and it created a script, right? That doesn't really happen. But like, we've seen the failures of AI and and machine learning. We've seen what happens when you give it bad data. We've seen what happens when you give it incomplete data. You get incomplete or bad results. And if we're just taking that data and taking that analysis and we're just blindly following it, we're not doing our job as product managers and we're not going to be successful as companies. You really you really want the best of both worlds. You want all of that data and all of that analytics, but you need the context of the business reality layered over that to make the right decisions. So let's go back to a topic we touched on a little bit earlier. And I, I completely agree with you on the data point, but one thing I found interesting that we started to talk about and I wanted to jump back to is this concept of dissonance, Right comes out of, I guess, psychology. Yes. Um, So talk to me a little bit more about that and how product managers should think about that and use that to maybe avoid some of their own biases. Yeah. So the, I mean, the whole concept of this, it's, it's a, what I was talking about with the theory of selves is it's a branch of cognitive dissonance and right. The idea of cognitive dissonance is that you're actually holding two antithetical concepts in your mind at once. And and we don't like to do that as human beings. It's really it's really hard for our brains to hold two competing ideas at the same time. So often our brain actually just randomly picks one or the other and goes with it. So you know sometimes you'll see you'll see people who are holding these two disparately held beliefs that and it's unpredictable what they're going to do 
moment to moment if they're confronted with that situation. I think you can actually take that much more. So you can take the next step and, and, and start thinking about as a product manager, you know, we have cognitive dissonance out the wahoo, right? We, we are constantly holding competing ideas in our brains and trying to figure out which is the right one, which is the better one, which is the worst one. And we should understand that sometimes our brain wants a random selection. It doesn't, it doesn't actually calculate anything. So when we make those decisions, we need to stop and think, okay, is this being data-driven uh, or is this just literally my brain just saying pick one and, and move on? So there's, there's the step at the personal level. There's a step at the team level. And I think there's a lot of team development that we can do as product managers, kind of calling people out in our teams when they're doing things that don't match what we, what we say we do. So, you know, as an example, if our UX team is talking about how we always go out and get you know, user feedback and this, that, and the other thing, but you're not actually seeing it, have a discussion about that, right? Call out that dissonance, call out that difference between the theory and practice and the theory, uh, the espoused theory. Most people don't understand that they're doing these things. It's not conscious. They're not thinking, oh, you know, we always need to get user data, but we don't really want to, right? There's always a reason for it. There's always a rationalization. And we as product managers can drive that improvement, both in ourselves and in our teams and in other teams that we work with. But also recognize that that same thing exists in our customers, right? So when we're sitting there, you know, it's it's the observer effect is another another interesting angle on this, right? So when we go out to a customer's place of business and we're sitting there watching them work, we're not actually seeing them work the way that they always work. We're seeing a particular presentation of that work that is being influenced by us being there. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with these these kind of dissonant angles, right? But we need to be aware of it so that we can be like, okay, no, I saw that you did that. Is that something you, you do every day? You know, actually prompting people for those questions, you know, why is it that you do it that way? Why, you know, are there other ways that you've done this in the past? If you didn't have the product, how would you do that? Kind of asking those leading questions that break the the model that they have in their head of what's going on so that you can dive in and, and dig in and get to those kind of hidden needs, right? We, we don't innovate over surface needs. We innovate over those hidden latent needs that are really hard to dig out and find. So we've talked about a lot today. You know, if you were to summarize the words of wisdom from today into, you know, your three top pithy takeaways for listeners, what would they be? <laughs> That's always tough, man. I think I think if I had to if I had to boil it down, I think number one is be curious, right? Always look for the next insight, the next opportunity, the next thing that you don't know. Be comfortable not knowing something, but push yourself to learn more about it. You don't have to become an expert overnight, right? You just need to be curious enough that you grow a little bit every single day because that, you know, curiosity breeds growth and growth leads to success in everything that you're doing. The second one is is be comfortable with chaos, right? Some level of chaos should be normal for a product manager. And if you're comfortable with not knowing what every day is going to bring, then it's a great role for you. At the same time, if you're not comfortable with it, if you're not comfortable with randomization, with interruptions, with short-term memories, you know, it might not be the best fit. I've mentored a few people that I've, I've honestly had to say, you know what, I think you're a project manager. I don't think you're a product manager because I don't think you have the comfort level with chaos that's going to allow you to succeed. And some people don't, you know, it's, it's, it's a character trait. It's a personality trait that not everyone has. So keep that in mind. That's a, that's a key thing for product managers. And then the last thing is my, my agile soapbox, right? You know, agility is, is a lot more than just checking off a list of ceremonies and having a prioritized backlog of work, right? You can have retrospectives all you want, but if you're never actually 
acting on any of the feedback, then you're not doing agile. You know, it's a cultural value that needs to be fostered within an organization. And it can be really, really hard to get buy-in on accepting uncertainty. But the fact is, we don't know everything before we start a project. And if we take the time to try to know everything, we're wasting that opportunity. You know, success in this day and age is determined in days or minutes or seconds. It's not determined in years and months anymore, right? I can't take a year to build a new product from beginning to end. I need to start iterating every three months, every two months, just to get feedback and make sure that I know that I'm solving a market problem. So let's turn our topics a little bit to Cliff. What's your favorite product? Why is it your favorite? Yeah, I always I always hate this question, to be honest, but I'm okay. I, I can deal with it. So I'm actually a little bit behind the tech curve on this one, but I've recently started playing with Arduino boards. And it's new for me because I've, I've, I've been a software guy my whole life, software and web development. So, you know, the idea that I actually have this physical board that I solder things onto, and once I do that, it's done, right? If I mess something up, you know, the amount of room for error in, in a hardware physical thing is so much less than it is for software, right? If I, if I screw something up in software, I just recode it and recompile it. It's good to go. Or I, I publish it up to a web page, right? All that sort of thing. But if I screw up the soldering or, you know, the connections or I, I fried a board a couple of weeks ago by mixing up my positive and negative leads, right? It's really given me a whole new insight into hardware product management because it isn't as error tolerant, right? It, it, there is a lot more upfront stuff that you might need to do. So I'm kind of broadening my horizons there with the Arduino boards and projects and little nifty little things like a, a randomized, what is it? A LED, a randomized LED display that I can put in my Mustang and, and have flashing lights with the music, you know, things like that. It's kind of fun. Yeah, definitely fun. And it's definitely less tolerant, especially when you uh, mix up positive and negative. <laughs> so final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. This was a fun one to try to think through. I came up with curious, compassionate, and driven. You know, I, I've talked a lot about curiosity and how important that is. I think compassion in a, in a product manager is an essential trait. Some people will call it empathy. I think it's more compassion because it's not just understanding how someone feels, but it, you know, it's, it's that sympathy, empathy guideline, but it's not just about feelings. It's about goals and agendas and, you know, personal considerations, right? There's a whole gamut of things that if you're compassionate as a product manager and you actually take time to understand the people you work with, you'd be so much better at your job. And then driven because I'm constantly driving myself to be better, my teams to be better, my products to be better, my organization to be better. Thank you, Cliff. This was wonderful. Really like it. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It was, a, it was a great opportunity. I love talking with you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.